The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyon. Special guest for the hour is going to be uh, Jerome Blocklin from the Netherlands. We're going to be talking about kind of the end of uh, globalization here, talk about the housing from the international perspective, uh, because I think there's a lot to learn from that. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. All right, so um, listen, Jerome, you, you and I did this, I don't know, three, four months ago. We talked about a lot of things, and a lot of things I remember we'll, we'll kind of tease out here. But before we get too deep into anything, just uh, for the audience's own edification, talk about who you are and what you do. Yes, so my name is Jeroen Blokland, and I'm the uh, uh, founder and CEO of uh, True Insights, which is a company that provides uh, independent investment research for both retail and professional investors. And we try to help them uh, make better informed investment decisions. We use a uh, framework that is built on three main pillars. That is also what I talk about a lot in our pieces, macro sentiment and valuation. So not just macro to make that very clear. And the last thing is that we translate these views into tangible ETF-based global multi-asset portfolios, which which our clients can see and follow. Uh, So yeah, that's basically what I do all day. Prior to uh, starting up the firm, what were you? What was your career path? Yeah, I, I used to, the last job I had was the uh, head of multi asset at Robico, which is one of the uh, yeah bigger pure play asset managers in in uh, Europe with uh, something of uh, two hundred euro billion in assets under management. Okay, so for a moment, I want you to focus on the word independent when you said independent research, and I, I want to hit on that for a bit because I don't know if people really. <laughs> fully realize the conflicts of interest that come out from sell-side research, right? People are naturally skeptical of analysts. But from your vantage point, just talk about what you've seen in terms of some of these large institutions and uh, the, these, again, kind of conflicts of interest they have when they're covering different companies. Well, I think the best example is, of course, they have to show these statistics on, on their ratings and uh, overweights, underweights, and things like that. And the, the fact is that they have a buy side and a sell side. And, and for some of these companies, that, that does not seem to be a problem. And for others, it's a, it's a little bit more complex. The thing is that if you talk to a company that's, that does both, you, you know that their aim is, is slightly different than, for example, my company. Yeah? So, so I, I try to build the best research out there to help you make the investment decisions. That's about it. And, and, and I have skin in the game to these portfolios. Yeah? So, so, so that is also to make it tangible, but also to make it, yeah, let's say, trustworthy. And there, there is no other part of the business that is the business. So, so I think in general, that, that's about this. Yeah? It, it's, it's not two sides. Uh, of the story, but only one side, and it is is, is the buy side or or, or the long only uh, strategy. Okay, so so macro and valuations. People tend to think that they are related. You can make an argument that they really haven't been for for some time. Talk about the differential in terms of how you think about the macro environment versus how expensive or cheap things are. Because you can have overvalued be overvalued for a while in a shitty macro environment. You can have undervalued be undervalued for a while in a phenomenal macro environment so talk about how you think about those two and merging those two schools of thought well if you look at so first of all of course all of these building blocks or pillars macro sentiment and evaluation they they, they come together at at some point that there, there there are spillovers and we should not throw that away too easily but but there is a yeah, clear distinction in how you can use them when when trying to create market views so in this case if you look at macro, 
I think it's pretty straightforward. It is deteriorating and, and, and in some cases it's deteriorating pretty quickly. So, for example, if you look at domestic demand in China, so the China services PMI is down to 36. That only happened in, in the first phase of COVID. These are COVID-like numbers which were related to an economic sudden stop. But also if you look at the latest ISM manufacturing number, which was lower than expected, if you look at underlying data, the ISM manufacturing will continue to fall and, and in some cases will fall uh, or, or, or some indicators indicate it will, will fall to below 50. If you look at consumer sentiment and, and especially the, the willingness to spend, yeah, if inflation is, is this high for so long, people who do not have excess savings and, and, and excess savings are very skewed. A few people have a lot and a lot of them have zero. So, so, so the, the macro environment is pretty straightforward i would say that is deteriorating and again uh, then we have the the the, the fed that is going to make things worse because they have to tighten at least for now pretty aggressively i i think we'll also talk a little bit about uh, that and then you have valuation so i updated uh, because the end of the month is always a a good time to update all of these numbers and you do see that valuations are not as high as they were, especially outside the U.S. So the U.S. and U.S. technology is still relatively expensive. But if you look outside the U.S., then then things yeah look more attractive, but they are not cheap. And that means that valuation at this point is, is not low enough to prevent a further sell-off that is driven by this uh, deteriorating macro environment. So in this case, valuation yeah, is, 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 is in no man's land, and it is also likely not a driver for either a rally or, or, or further decline. It's just not attractive enough for investors to, to, to get back in from this valuation perspective. Oftentimes when, when people talk about valuation, they're primarily talking about equities. They don't necessarily think about valuation in the same way when it comes to the bond market, right? Because really yields is about growth and inflation. How do you view what's happened in the bond market, not just obviously in the U.S., but globally, because I think people forget that what's happening with this yield spike is is really not only, I would argue, a black swan of all black swans, but is happening in a coordinated way that makes highly indebted countries now suddenly have to worry if they can even roll over that debt at a higher interest expense. Talk, talk through if you think this this correction in bonds is is justified because bonds were overvalued and if they are maybe becoming more reasonably attractive now. Yes. So, so for the first part of your question, so I think it's very good to, to keep in mind that indeed it is not about equity market valuation. And there are a lot of valuation measures that give a cross asset signal. And of course, that is what I do, a multi asset. So, so that is one thing. Uh, and then the second thing is I think bond yields, especially in the US, are too high. Uh, so we use a, because this is about valuation, we use a very straightforward fair, fair value model for, for the bond yield. And that incorporates factors like, of course, inflation, unemployment, but also the change in the size of the central bank balance sheet. And yeah, for a long time, that, that, fair value model yielded a pretty decent relationship with the actual bond yield. And what that fair value uh, model is saying now is that uh, current bond yields are at least one percentage points, I should say, too high. Now, of course, we have this quantitative tightening that, that, is, that is a little bit in between these two values. But, but I would say also, if you look at history, normally when a central bank, and especially in the US, the Fed start to tighten and starts to tighten aggressively, yeah, because we have not seen uh, 50 basis point hikes, uh, hikes since 2002, 20 years ago, that then bond, longer term bond yields tend to fall. Also, the aim for the Fed is to kill inflation, which obviously is much uh, too high. So, so historically, you have seen that bond yields uh, should go lower. And I also think the, the Federal Reserve will have a hard time uh, beating the last peak uh, of the tightening cycle. So that was 2.5%. If you, if you look at a chart with the Fed target rate from 1980s, the peak target rate is always lower except for one uh, phase, and that was in 2001. Uh, but, but you will see. And, and I think that something will break either the markets or the economy or both. And that could, could be as early as this year. And that, 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 that will refrain the Fed from hiking either too fast or stop entirely. And again, also because then the shorter end of the yield curve also 
becomes lower than expected. And so, so I think there are a lot of reasons to expect expect that that bond yield should be lower. So I think they are attractive. We are also overweight. I must admit hey, that I was too early <laughs> because I did not uh, anticipate that we would make it until 3%. But yeah, if, if I look at the models in economic indicators, inflation, yield curve expectations, history, nothing is, is, is confirming the current rise in, in bond yields. So, so I think they will come down. It's interesting you said the way you framed it, you said something will break markets or the economy or both. And I want to focus on the both for a moment because it used to be the case, I don't, I'm not so sure it's the case anymore, that something like the S&P 500 as a proxy was a leading indicator, right? It's one of the leading indicators the, the Federal Reserve looks at to get a sense of you know the, the future expectations of the economy. But increasingly, equities became a conduit for the wealth effect, which impacted consumer spending. And I would argue it's become more, le- more quinstant than, than leading. Do you think that the role of equities as a signal for the economy has has changed over the years, or is it still indicative of what's to come or likely to come in in broader economic activity? If I have to choose, I think the latter, because in the end, a lot of investors, markets, however you want to define it, they react to, for example, a slowing of uh, earnings per share growth or even negative growth. But but I, but I do think what is yeah, crossing that uh, thought is that because of this monetary policy, but also negative real yields for so long. And so I'm a strong believer that negative real yields pushes investors up the risk curve because they want to escape these uh, negative uh, yields. And so that that this melt-up was driven partly because of this extraordinary monetary policy. But so 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 maybe the, the, the curve eh, of, the, of, the, of the increase has steepened because of that. But around that... I still think that, that that expectations about company earnings, valuations, earnings momentum, macro momentum will still deter the, 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 the leading indicator role of equities. And, and, and I think basically they are starting to do that huh, because equity markets have, have, have performed yeah, pretty poorly in recent, recent weeks and months, whereas the, the, the demand side, the, the macro data is, is still relatively a beat. Huh? Even the ISM manufacturing, it, it was lower than expected, but it's still at, at 55. So, so I expect that equities will still do that. And that also means for me that there is more di- downside at this point uh, until, because not, uh, something has not really broken uh, yet. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. Right, and, and yet is the important point. I keep I keep seeing people talking about how equities have been unbelievably resilient in the face of all of this inflationary pressure, in the face of this bond market crash, in the face of these currency extreme moves, which we'll talk about, that are happening. But I, I think at the same time, people are forgetting that Equities are often, let's call it the, the dumbest asset class in the room, relative to bonds, right? Relative to maybe other areas, which we can we can tease out a bit. No, 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 that's great. No, no, that's that's, that's perfect because I, I think it's it's an important thing to think through. And and, it, and I'll tell you, just setting the stage a little bit. I had a, a conversation with his name's escaping me now, but he's talking about monopolies and how so much of the world of the last decade was focused on cheaper pricing, and it didn't matter how you got the cheaper pricing. That's all that mattered, and. Yeah, that's what globalization resulted in. So, so riff on that a little bit, Jerome, because I think yeah, we should get to the topic here. Yeah, so we wrote a piece, the end of globalization and what that means for your portfolio. So, so it is also in our framework a a, a hot uh, topic, and you know, I, I think there are basically three main reasons why we see less globalization or even an end to it in the coming years, perhaps decades. First of all, of all, of all is of course yeah, geopolitical risks. And so, so 
you can look at some long-term statistics, but basically we have seen also the case with China joining the global economy that, that these geopolitical risks have been declining on, on, on average. But yeah, the last five or even 10 years, and some, some say even longer, you, you see that this relationship between China and the US, the two most powerful nations globally, that is of importance here, is deteriorating, is, is souring. And that is not just because uh, the former president uh, Trump started this trade war, but even before that, we had these big discussions about intellectual property, pricing, currency manipulation, things like that. So, so also because these two countries are, are, seem to be drifting away, and they also have a very different view on societies and economies. And now with the war in Ukraine, you see that Russia will drift east. So, so I think th this relationship is and will remain complex. Yeah, and, and that means... I think that that means that for years, and that is, of course, what is mentioned, uh, it, it, it was a lot about uh, lower prices ever, ever. And that was on the top of the list of these policymakers as well, eh, because lower prices are all, always a good story. And I think that that this will drop off their to-do list and that these, yeah, these, the, 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 the rearranging of these, these powers and the geopolitical relationships will move up on their to-do list. Eh? So, so that, that means that, that, is, that is one important reason. Second is a, is, a, is a little bit more tangible, I would say. The same policymakers have failed miserably, of course, in realizing resource, what we call now resource security. They, they have been screaming for years uh, about too optimistic targets on sustainability, re reducing greenhouse gas emissions, things like that. They have made it very difficult for traditional energy companies to invest. And, and now the end consumer and voter is, is paying for that. And, and that means po policymakers always are reactive. They will respond and they will try to build their own supply chains, even if they're not efficient. Uh, and, and of course, Europe is the best example. Right? They, they will try to get rid of Russian oil and gas, but also what kind of supply chain, how many supply chains do we get now, if you believe that a global supply chain helped with deflationary pressures, then you should also expect the opposite, of course. And, 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 the, and the third reason that is, that is, is, is a little bit an extension of, of the second, and then we have also this green revolution. And that is, of course, very resource uh, intensive. And, but also, you can also now include food and water and, and, and now name it. And you will see, to, to not make the same mistake as with energy, you will now see all of these new supply chains, these new supply initiatives, whatever. Uh, and so everybody is going to try to build uh, their own supply chain. In the end, there will only be a couple of labs, but not one global one. Yeah, and, and that adds to my idea that that globalization is 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 less on the top of mind of policymakers and and a lot of other uh, people as well. And that and that means that it that it will end. And there are a couple of even though these are long term uh, relationships and long term relation uh, numbers, but there are two charts that that are interesting here. First is if you look at the growth in world trade relative to the growth in uh, global GDP. For 30 years, trade outperformed, outgrown uh, a global GDP. Uh, but, but in recent years, that has flattened, and, and by some estimates, it will turn negative. Uh, so global GDP will grow faster than a global uh, trade. And the second, and that is a chart from the, the World Bank, I believe that is if you look at the global share of trade uh, to G GDP, that has already been declining since uh, the great financial crisis, uh, so in 2008. And so even now in the numbers, you, you see some yeah, confirmation that, that, that this globalization trend is coming to an end or has already ended. Do a thought experiment with me on this, Jerome. I mean, if let's agree for a moment that globalization is reversing. It's you know, going to take time if it's going to really fully, fully go the other way. But would you argue that globalization has been, I assume the answer is yes, has been a contributing factor and maybe a major one to the widening wealth gap, and if it has, would the implications of a reversal of globalization mean that you end up having a return of the middle class? I know that's kind of a big thought experiment, but I want you to talk through that idea for a bit. You know, the answer is, is so it's extremely complex question, of course, but, but if you your assumption can only hold in a society where you have a, let's say, uh, a U.S.-based or even European-based idea, eh? so that, that if there are gains to be made, uh, somebody is going to get it, and if you try hard enough, uh, you will end up, and, and, that, and, that, and that means that people who do not have the possibilities to do that will not get that piece of the pie, let's say, uh, together. Eh? So, so I think, yeah, for a 
small part, part I would agree, but I think it is more the whole uh, way of how these societies are built or, or how they yeah how they function or operate that that it, it, I think it requires more changes within these societies to to really reduce the wealth gap and then I think other policies also should be taken into account like social system taxes you can you can name hundreds of them and I'm not an expert on that but I, I do not think that if globalization was the sole factor that changed in the world and everything else would remain the same, which of course not the case. I do not think that that would be enough to reduce the wealth distribution or the, or the, or the gap between rich and poor. It's interesting how the cycles played out because if globalization is ultimately a, a disinflationary force and it results in concentration of supply chains, kind of a I believe Ricardian type of economic viewpoint, yeah. concentration of where things are cheapest, right? And then you end up having some kind of geopolitical event like what we're seeing with Russia and Ukraine, then the supply chain reverses, supply chain disruptions reverses the inflationary trend. But then if you then go back to, and the pendulum swings away from globalization, well, that should also be inflationary too, right? Because now you've got labor that might be needed to be shifted from China or from Russia to other more expensive countries. So let's talk about sort of the the implications on how inflation might change with globalization reversing a bit. Yeah, so this this is this is a very interesting topic and this is also why I think the focus on globalization is relevant uh, because if you w- want to argue that inflation is going to be higher in the future than than in the last, say, 40 years when it has come down uh, and it was really low since the great financial crisis, some of these big uh, inflation drivers uh, should change. So you think about technology, uh, you think about monetary policy, you think about demographics, you think about luck or in case of a war in Ukraine, bad luck. So you have to make a point that some of these things will change. Now, as I mentioned in the previous question, I think that globalization could be one of them, one of two that change. So the other one is is monetary uh, policy. I think policymakers, um, um, central bankers in general, will want to allow for a little bit more of inflation because of debt sustainability. So that's the second thing I think that will change. But then you have globalization. and, And I fully agree with you. If you believe that a global supply chain means lower prices, and there are a lot of data that, that supports that assumption, then the reverse should happen if you deglobalize. So that, that, is, that is what, what I uh, believe. And, the, and, and that adds up to when it comes to investing and when it comes to strategic asset allocation, structural higher inflation is one of the yeah, bigger trends that, that, that change that, that have impact on how your uh, strategic asset allocation should look like. Yeah? So, so yes, I do think that structural higher inflation because of monetary policy and globalization could become higher, whereas the other factors and like demographics uh, and technology, I don't think they will really change. Uh, they will have the comparable, a comparable impact as they have now. So for me, it's pretty obvious, even though this is a very long-term assumption and trend, of course, that we'll get a, a little bit of higher inflation structurally, partly because of this deglobalization or end of globalization phenomenon. Yeah, so this, this is a very Western perspective, eh? but because if you look at China, but also India. So India is, is, is actively trying to get an even bigger discount on Russian oil. So they, they, they do not have any, don't see any obstacle by what is going on to, to remove these trade relationships. China is the same and, and, and a number of other countries as well. So, so that, that, that is one thing. You could also, in very black and white, so even in 2022, Germany, let's say Germany, is actively doing business with Russia because it has put the the outlook for its own economy and its own people above what is going on in Ukraine. And and that sounds harsh, but but that is what it is. And, and, And they can back that up because the Deutsche Bundesbank, they made an estimate that if they Germany would suggest or there would be a global embargo on all Russian exports, including oil and gas, then then the German economy would take a hit uh, of 5% percentage points uh, compared to the 
current estimate, which is already coming down. So a big, big recession uh, to, to keep it uh, short. And this is, the, this is the reason why Germany has said, okay, we will try to end the use of Russian oil by the end of the year. And they hope that they can, they can prevent the recession by that. So, so I think that when it comes to economic aspects, and these are very uh, large, that you see now that they can trump perhaps societal or, 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 or human perspectives on what is going on there. So my idea is that for some countries, there is no change, India, China, other countries. And I also think that if this war ends, the big thing is, of course, how does it end? I don't know anymore because this is a very complicated situation and, and there's no easy way out anymore for for. for all of them, for all parties that are involved. But, but I think that if, if there's an upside for European or US, the US economy or, or governments to do business with Russia, take the example of, of what I mentioned before, eh? the, the, the Green Revolution requiring massive, massive amounts of, of resources, I think that that will outweigh the, the, let's say, the personal perspective on that, eh? that you really don't like Mr. Putin for what he has done. So, so my idea is... Yes, we will trade with Russia, perhaps much less. We will set up new supply chains, but, but Russia is, is a very, very big player in the commodity space. So, so I am pretty convinced that, that yeah, one way or another, we will trade with Russia because if we don't, we cannot realize our, our very ambitious goals on, on, on energy security, on, on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, sustainability, and so on and so on. So yes. I think we will, we will. I think the US as well. The, the, the change, of course, is that this is also, the US is energy independent or close to energy independent. And it uh, happens to uh, share a continent with a country that is also very big in commodities, right? So, so they have, on that side, they have more options. And so the US could, let's say, without hitting its own economy, could, could, could take a harsher stance towards Russia. I also think they will do that. But if for one reason or another, there is a long-term economic factor coming into, into place, I don't think that the US forever, ever will say we will not trade with Russia or do not. So, so and in any case, because of China and India, Russia will not get isolated. So you can also ask, ask the question, what, what, what impact would it have on Russia if, if I, in this case, for example, Europe or Germany, doesn't trade with Russia anymore. They sell their, their oil to India. Yes, so you keep the questions going because then in the end we will hit all the three major uh, trends that we have distinguished that that is a reason to change or to adjust your strategic asset allocation, including more real assets. So, so short term, yeah, the, the dollar means tighter uh, financial conditions globally yeah, because a lot of commodities but also other things are paid in, in dollars and so 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 a rising dollar means tighter financial conditions and most of the time especially when it goes uh, as quickly as we have seen now means also lower risky assets yeah. so that, that is that is for the short term the, the story for the longer term uh, yes the dollar is overrepresented in a lot of things. And a good example is global FX reserves, global currency reserves. So it's, it's roughly 60% of the total uh, basket. Whereas if you look at the dollar position in global trade, it's just above 30%. Huh? So, so it's, it's by legacy, it is, it is much, much bigger than, than uh, you should expect based on economic indicators, global trade, and, th and things like, like uh, that. In addition, coming back to this Russia story, uh, you also have seen that dollars on a bank account, uh, they, they, with a couple of uh, pushes on a button, these are gone, or better to say, unusable. And, and I think that the combination of these two, these two things and the dollar already being very expensive could lead to a structural move away from the US dollar before everyone, everyone starts to start me direct messages. I do not think that the financial system will collapse anytime soon. I do think it will change, but I don't think it will end abruptly like many uh, do. But I, by, but I do think that even if you are, for example, a central bank of a very well-respected country, take Switzerland. You know that 60% is too much. You know what has happened with Russia, and you know that maybe 
diversification in any case is at least worth to take a look at. So I also think that US-friendly countries yeah, will, will, will rethink their, okay, how should these global FX reverse or my FX reserves, what should they look like? And I, and I also think that other currencies... Uh, like the Chinese renminbi, that sounds a little bit uh, paradoxical, but yeah, I do think because they are so small, even though they are so big in global trade, gold, perhaps commodities, uh, perhaps Bitcoin, but I do think that there will be a general rethink of, of how how you build a global FX reserve currency. And, uh, and in that case, it's pretty straightforward that the US dollar is too big. So even if you're not completely bearish on the US dollar, it still can make sense to say, okay, we are going to diversify away uh, a little bit. And, and then, then you have two of the three trends. So structural higher inflation, structural move away from the US dollar that could go to gold and uh, commodities. So for example, it, 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 it's, it sounds, may sound a little bit far away, but suppose that the European Central Bank did not only have US dollars, other currencies and gold, but also commodities, oil, we would, wouldn't have this problem now. And, and it, it, that sounds far-fetched, but, but why not? Uh, and, and the lot of this, uh, and then I'll stop talking <laughs> for a bit, uh, is that I also believe that we will have structural negative real yields for much longer. And this is because structural higher inflation cannot be accompanied by structural higher bond yields because of debt sustainability. And so our growth model is driven by debt. We issue debt to buy growth. And that means if real, if real yields or yields go up, then debt sustainability becomes an issue. And the only way to, to, to extend this model is by allowing higher inflation because debt is a nominal uh, number and then have low yields to go with that and that, that maintains debt sustainability. Now, if you add these three things to get, uh, together, structural high inflation, structural negative real yields and structural move away from the US dollar, you end up, okay, please take a look at how much of real assets, excluding equities, these are, these are to a certain extent, okay, also inflation, real assets, but a lot of a lot of investors, really a lot of investors, apart from equities, have zero exposure to real assets. And, and, and my advice or my idea is, please add a little bit. And, and for some people, that means Bitcoin. For some people, that means gold. For some people, that means real estate or inflationing bonds. And, but, but they are underrepresented. And yeah, to, to end a long story, this, this is one of our main stories. Please look at your strategic asset allocation and, and, and try to figure out how much exposure to real assets do you actually have. So I have, a, um, I have subscribers to the Lead Lag Report from all over the world, and I try to make it a point to talk to you know, many of them once a quarter, right? Just And some of them are advisors, some of them are high net worth individuals just wanting to get a different macro take. And about a month, month and a half ago, I had three conversations, two uh, two different people from Australia, one from Finland, and I asked each of, each of them, you know, so how is the property market, how is the housing market in your in your countries? And everything that they had said, I could have repeated verbatim in talking about U.S. housing. You're in the Netherlands yourself, and part of the benefit of these spaces is that I get global perspectives. Talk about housing locally around you, Jerome, for a second, is, is it similar to the dynamics that we see here in the U.S. where things are just so overvalued, so crazy in terms of bidding? Talk through how, you, how, how it's looking in the Netherlands for a moment. Yeah, it's worse. I, I, my statement is it's worse. And that is because, yes, we share the same dynamics. So housing, of course, is also about uh, supply and demand. And, and th there's this great chart from The Economist. The, they do it on a global level. They show global the, the, the trend in global supply of new homes. It's, it's, it's the lowest in 40 years, whereas demand for homes is, is going crazy. Yeah? So, so it is a, this is a basic yeah, massive supply and demand mismatch that causes this on a global scale. The, things why, the, the reason why it's even worse in the Netherlands is because in the Netherlands, you get a tax reduction for taking a mortgage. So, so there is a tax benefit when taking out a mortgage. They are reducing this now, but yeah, if you look at stability reports globally, IMF reports, World Bank reports, whatever kind of something, always the Netherlands is mentioned because of this tax rebate, let's call it like this. this, this so, so this drives up artificially the demand for houses and, and there's also uh, a, a massive gap between people who choose to rent 
and and the wealth effect to name that again of people who uh, who take out a mortgage and then get a lot of that back and 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 the the the, the strange part is uh, that if your tax rate is higher your tax rebate is higher and so so there is this mechanism continuously also from a financial perspective, financial initiative to buy a house with a, a mortgage. Now, combine that with this supply and demand thing and you know where house prices are. And yeah, so they, they are also up 20 a uh, year on year or so. And, and also places like Amsterdam, Rotterdam is a little bit cheaper, but places like Amsterdam, they, they are, it's always in the top 10, top 20 of, of, of most expenses, expensive places to buy a, buy a house. Yeah? So, so yes, we are no different from, from the countries that you mentioned or from the US. It, it is sque- sque- squeezed to the upside in a dramatic way. And it is also a, a very, very big problem for, for the governments. How, how do you make sure that, that people who want to start a family have first-time homeowners, that they, can, they are still able to buy a home? And also, if you are a student living in a city, having a room for yourself, can only um, be done with the help of mom and dad that then pay for it. Otherwise, it's it's not doable anymore. And a lot of these students, they live at home, even though they should move out or want to move out. Uh, so so that is my perspective from, from the Netherlands. And I'm curious, is, is there a similar dynamic where a lot of people buy second homes? The reason I'm going in that direction is I, I, I went through this series of tweets in the morning talking about how there are these estimates around a shortage of, of homes. There's 3 million that are that should be built to meet demand. But when you look at the number of homes that are second homes that are not your primary residence in the U.S., it's closer to 10 million. So that so part, of the worst, part of this supply shortage is a function of just housing being seen as its own asset class to then rent out through the Airbnbs of the world and the Verbos. Is there a similar dynamic in in the Netherlands and in, in maybe other parts of Europe? Yes, it is. And so in the Netherlands, we now have legislation that prevents big real estate companies from buying up all these houses. And so again, these are for the major city, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and so on. And but for years, yeah, you have seen that the, the supply of homes, as you mentioned as well, huh, was even even thinner if you take out these 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 investment-driven buying of houses. Huh? So so there are now there is now legislation, there are limits. But still, you are so far off from the equilibrium that that there has to be done uh, more. Yeah? So, so yeah, again, I do think that this is also a, a global phenomenon, and it's not different in the Netherlands. And also because, yeah, because you have here uh, this ta- tax rebate. Whenever you are not comfortable with, with investing your money into financial markets, it it is a basic a a logic follow a next step to then buy a second house or a third house or, or so so yes it's it's the same same here yeah which is, which is actually really wild to me because that's you could <laughs> the argument basically would be that you could stop a lot of these this talk around the supply of homes being constrained if you simply did some legislative le- legislative measures to to make it harder or much more expensive, not only for institutions but also individuals, high net worth individuals, to take advantage of low rates, to buy up second properties, third properties, because then it's actually available for sale for again primary residents. Yeah, so that that is what is happening in the Netherlands. Yeah. So you have all these new rules that either prevent you or limit you as a real estate company. And there's also this thing. I don't know if the, the same in other countries. You have a transfer tax for let's say consumers who buy a house and they have uh, it's either zero or very low it used to be eight percent or seven percent i think and they have lowered that drastically to 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 make it uh, more attractive for these starters or first home buyers or home buyers in general relative to these real estate companies so yes of course there there are a lot of things that you can do to to close that gap but because the gap has grown so large, this will take decades, decades, I think, and not years. So, so this whole story that there are the, the supply of houses is too low, the great charge from the economist, my guess is we'll, we'll see that for another five or ten years. Yeah, and I guess my point is it's not maybe that the supply is too low, it's that the demand is artificial because it's not really, again, for, for living there, right? So just, it may be just kind of a, a different angle to that. So, and, and, and maybe as a follow-up to that, you know, at least in the U.S., housing is a leading indicator because not only is it where most people's net worth is, but it's a big driver of credit creation, right, from from the standpoint of home equity loans. And I just sort of don't know the answer, so I want you to educate me on this. But is there a similar dynamic in, in, in Europe in general where housing is a big driver of 
increased liquidity, right, from the standpoint of home equity loans. Talk through that a bit because if it is, and we all agree that housing is overextended and crazy, well, then if it's going to self-correct, presumably that means there's going to be another liquidity drainage coming. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, so I, I know a bit of this from the Netherlands, and I think it, it is similar in, in a number of European countries, but, but I'm not the expert here. But you see that it is much more difficult to get the additional value uh, of your house. So, for example, in the Netherlands, if you have, uh, yeah, your home has, has risen in value, you can only use that uh, value uh, into your new home or, of course, of course, if you if you if you decide to, to buy a smaller house, then then you can cash in on it. But it's very difficult to loan against it, to use it, to provide liquidity, uh, to pro- provide credit. So so in the Netherlands, that the, the the possibilities to do that have really come down. So it 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 was already less use uh, uh, normal of common than in the US. I think that. In the US, I think, is, is a bit of the exception. I don't know if I should call it like this, but it was on the upper end of this, this story that you, that, you, that you say. And in Europe, houses were not used in a way that, and, 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 and the cash in on houses was mostly done when people decided to, to, to sell the family house and then moved to a smaller. So, so, so I, th- I think this effect is less uh, pronounced in Europe than it is in the US. I, th- I think there it is much uh, much stronger. So that kind of dovetails into a question that I've posed in other spaces, and more and more people are banging the drum on this. This idea that we're either entering or in, or we're very close to, however you want to frame it, some kind of a a global recession as different central banks are hiking rates at different periods of time from the from the strategic asset allocation perspective again in the context of the end of globalization and wherever we are in this strange desynchronized cycle how do you think about the question of recession here uh, because i don't know if it's that clear that this is sort of a run of the mill type of a slowdown because on a real basis you might be negative but on a nominal basis it looks like you're still growing yeah, that is, that is a good that is a good point. So okay, for for the next recession, I, I don't for, for me that doesn't really matter for the strategic asset allocation. It does for the tactical asset allocation, of course. So for the strategic, this whole real asset, be aware that that these could outperform after underperforming for forty years or so. From a shorter point of view, my idea is that that these cycles could become synchronized. Pretty quickly now, what you see with what is happening in China. So, so these these macro numbers, so far as we can trust them, I know, I know, but still, you see, China is 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 really going to a very rapid slowdown, a domestic demand slowdown in a period when they made domestic demand more. Again, this also means because the monetary experiment in Japan is ongoing and the yen is is hitting a 20-year low against the US dollar. What would be helpful for China is a weaker currency. Well, there you have it, 4.8% weaker in in a matter of weeks. This has a pretty decent resemblance with uh, 2015 when markets uh, puked and they went down 30% on the top of my head in, in, I think, 10 trading days. So this could also add to the synchronization because all markets go down and these of course also increase the also for recession and in, in Europe one more hit to energy prices and I cannot I cannot but think that Putin knows that at the end of the year Europe does not want to buy its oil and gas so my guess is at some point he will make sure that it hurts again and then you also have a recession uh, so so the, the only thing that then could be different is the US. And of course, this is what uh, Mr. Uh, Jay Powell believes. And he thinks that with tightening, he can, he can orchestrate a soft landing. 
But most likely, and if you look at history, again, until something breaks, and that could be the economy. So, so I, I think that a recession could indeed be global. And then I think the response of central banks will be the same. So this is perhaps a big debate because we have this high inflation and we could have structural high inflation. But my idea is that once the recession hits, all of the extraordinary monetary policy that we have seen uh, before, negative uh, yielding bond yields, uh, rising uh, central bank balance sheets, they are applied quickly. to, to fend- And that is also why I'm not that negative about the recession. Yes, in, in the run-up to their risky assets will likely perform poorly, even that historically doesn't have to be the case. But I think I'm a really strong believer that, that the, the, the habit of lowering yields, negative yields, uh, buying corporate and, and government debt, I, I think they will refer to that immediately and so so i i I also think that 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 means that most countries or regions or whatever will come out of that relatively uh uh, quickly and that also means that the the build-up in this debt and debt sustainability and questions around it will not have been solved the only outlier most likely is then again china you already see that they are pretty unwilling to stimulate now that they actually have to, but, but they refrained from lowering interest rates. And, and the cut in the, in, the, in the reserve requirement ratio was, was the lowest on record. So that is not a full commitment to, to stimulus. But yeah, my, my view is, yeah, a recession could happen globally. Factors add together that, that for different reasons, but countries have a recession, but then all the central banks step step in, do the same as they have been doing since the great financial crisis, and then we happily uh, create a new cycle. And and, we go, and this is also why I don't think that the, the system will fail anytime system swiftly, because the, the, the response mechanism of these central banks, I cannot imagine that the ECB will do differently this time than in the last 12 years. I just, I just don't see it. Well, I don't know. Yeah, and it, it's not clear how they could not do that because that might then mean you kind of go back to the 2011 questioning of the eurozone. You know, uh, euro survivability. Yes, right? yes. I mean, it, the pink Italian spreads. Yeah, Italian spreads. Only thing to watch then. Yes. Right. Exactly. Right. So it's it's so it goes back to the same pattern, and 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 maybe that's kind of a good place to 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 do for the final. Uh, a few minutes here. So under that scenario, presumably goes back to the ar- argument that bonds would, you know, go back down in yield because that would be a, every recession historically tends to be obviously disinflationary. Kind of goes back to this point. I keep saying that every inflationary shock is actually inherently deflationary uh, with a long, long enough time frame. And but but that goes into a discussion real quick here around correlations. Right. So the the problem this year, as you know, is that unless you had any kind of commodities, everything has been correlated the same way. Equities, bonds, cryptocurrencies, right? Do you, From a macro perspective, do you find that certain regimes lend themselves to differing correlations or changing correlations? Or do you say to yourself, well, because it's all ultimately about liquidity and leverage, everything eventually correlates to one, no matter what you would argue about the merits of a particular investment? Well, it depends on the market circumstances. So, so yes, the correlation. Now, let's let the the backbone of many investment portfolios, equities and bonds. That that is that is painful because they are moving both in the wrong direction at the same time. Whereas normally you would not expect that. I do not think that that this will hold. As as we mentioned somewhere earlier, I do think that bond yields will go down, and that means if there's more economic pain. Uh, to be incorporated or reflected in markets uh, that at some point these correlations will turn for the better and that uh, treasuries or global government bonds uh, will prevent a cushion. The point, of course, is that because of bond yields are so low, the amount of cushion they can provide is is very, very, very limited. And uh, so that is that is one thing. And 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 yes, the thing that you mentioned at, at the start is very important here and, and comes back to my, my 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 notion about real assets. If you had commodities, and of course, I know nobody has 50% commodities in there, but commodities have been, now I don't think there are, is such a thing as a perfect hedge, but they have provided the correlation needed to, to weather some of these, of the, of the, of the turning correlation between these equities and bonds. So that, so that is one thing. And I, I think that real assets in general will continue to provide 
this correlation buffer in normal market circumstances. So that is what I started with the answer. Because yes, when things yeah, really go south and the fix is above 30, you can bet that the correlation of all these risky assets goes to one. I would like to make one point uh, on that. So there's, there's this there's this lot of attention on the NASDAQ and Bitcoin uh, correlation. And yes, these are on the far end of the risky asset perspective spectrum universe so yes they correlate a lot but i don't think that is a very sound thing to do first of all if you are going to use correlations which is a good thing by the way please do that on on, on total asset classes now if you look at the correlation between global equities and bitcoin that is that is actually a lot lower but also it is lower in general than for example the correlation with high yield and equities which tends to be around 0.7.8 even all of the time even in in not uh, uh, market turmoil uh, circumstances eh? but everybody considers these two as uh, different asset classes whereas the, the the diversification benefit of these two asset classes is there but it's never argued so so i would be very careful to make too easy conclusions about correlations i also think that equities and treasuries correlations will turn out for the better again, as mentioned. And I also think that some of these real assets, including commodities, gold, Bitcoin, inflation-linked bonds perhaps, also offer, offer diversification benefits. So, so from that angle, I'm not afraid that we will get stuck in a period, that a long-term period, that these correlations go the wrong way, because that would make things really complicated, I admit. Yeah, you know, I would argue if everything stays correlated on the in the same way on the downside, then everything is isn't really bigger things to worry about because the implications are horrendous on global wealth when you have that that debt load as high as it is. You need diversification, if anything, just to smooth out the path of however you can can push out the uh, kick the can down the road on yep. on the leverage, right? So which yep. is also yep. uh, important. So so listen, everybody that's joining, I appreciate everybody uh, spending the hour here. Please make sure you follow Jerome, check out his research as well. Uh, Jerome, I always uh, appreciate your time here. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.